welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast with me, Rue Chater. Season 2, Episode 15 with John Modica. Hi there, great to be speaking to you again. It's been a while. As a lot of you know, I enjoy doing these face-to-face. I enjoy the experience more. For me, this has always been about meeting people, sharing the conversations that I have. And obviously, in this current world, we can't do that at all. Um, Things have changed a lot in the last year or so, which I'm sure you're all aware of. Um, We recently moved to Wales, well, a year ago, where we've had some of the strictest rules for this pandemic, um, which have been quite tough. I worked out the other day with actually been locked down, unable to go to the beach, unable to surf, unable to kite for 189 days now, which is over six months out of the last 10. And I think we're the only country in the world that's had rules that strict when you think South Africa banned kite surfing and beach access for 30 days. And there was a bit of an uproar about it. It feels a little bit like we're forgotten out here on this little peninsula. No one in England seems to realise that those are the rules here and you're not allowed to travel to exercise and you can't do any exercise unless it starts and ends from your front door and water sports are are not allowed under the guidelines. So it's been a tough year really. We had a fantastic summer when we were open and we could go to the beach and we could kite and we could surf and it was awesome. Um, And then it's been pretty tough since October. But uh, fortunately, you know, business is still going so I'm blessed that we're in an industry where you know IK Surf Mag and Tonic Magazine and IMB are still in business and we're still moving forwards with those projects so that's exciting and I appreciate that some of you listening to this have probably had a really rough time of it Um, and it's been an awful year for many of you. I've decided that I'm not going to be able to see people to record these podcasts anytime soon So while the recording quality might not be to a standard that I'm happy with and while having a Zoom conversation might not be as as personal as sitting in the room with someone and shaking hands with them, that's just not possible at the moment. And I wasn't actually planning to do another podcast for a while. I've got a few projects on at the moment which are taking up a fair chunk of my time, which I'll tell you about in due course when the time is right. Um, but they're quite exciting and it just feels quite busy at the moment. But the other day, a friend of mine, James Balding, who we've had on the podcast before, called me up and asked me to interview John, who some of you may or may not be aware of. He used to be a pro rider for Cabrina and took some time out from being a pro in inverted commas and basically continued his education and ended up becoming a teacher and then setting up a very successful um, online assessment tool for teachers and students which he then sold and made a reasonable amount of money I think it's fair to say anyway fast forward a few years and he's now bought into the Cabrina brands with um, you know Pete Cabrina still on board but John and Kent Marankovic have bought into it and they're now sort of heading up the plans alongside Pete and moving the brand forwards so he's had quite an interesting life and arguably I'd say in the water sports world to go from a pro rider to then leave make some good cash and then be in a position to come back in and buy a brand I think that's probably the most unique person I can think of um, in the kite surfing world to you know I can't think of any other pro riders who've gone on to buy the brand that they used to be a rider for we recorded it over Zoom, so the quality's reasonable. It's actually pretty decent, but obviously there might be a few little blips and a few little cuts in there, so I apologise for those. He's got a pretty fantastic story to tell, actually, um, You know, from being a super stoked out Grom, which I'm sure so many of us can relate to, to the position that he's in now. So, without any further waffle from me, sit back and enjoy this podcast with John Modica. John, welcome to the Intriguing Beings podcast. Um, Looking forward to chatting to you today. And I've got a bunch of questions and things that I'm interested in I want to ask you about. I've, you know, come across you many times as editor of magazines in the past. And in the old days, I always remember you were a pro rider for Cabrina way back when. And first question was, how did you get into water sports? You know, what were you doing before kite surfing came along, have you always been around the ocean or was it something that was, you know, fairly fresh? 
Yeah, so thanks for having me, first off. It's always fun to kind of have these conversations. Um, yeah, I've been around water sports ever since I was a kid. My, uh, my whole family's been a big water sport family from uh, skiing to surfing and sailing. Uh, you know, we've just always grown up around the water in Florida. Um, I was actually introduced to kite surfing in a really happen chance situation with uh, a friend of mine, um, uh, Greg Norman Jr. went to Hawaii for a family vacation back in, I guess it was maybe 2000 or 99, picked up a uh, two-line kite after he took a kite surfing lesson there, came back to Florida and, uh, and, taught, and just taught me the very basics of it. Um, and then that next year, I had, I'd saved up all money, all the uh, money I couldn't make from the summer. And within a few months of uh, the summer ending and me saving up that money, a kite shop opened within like five minutes of my house. Oh, and wow. I thought, you know, that's got to be a sign. If, yeah. if there's if there's a sign in the world, that's one of them. I mean, it was, I think it was actually the closest retail store to my house was a kiteboarding shop. And no at way. the time, I think one of only two in the state of Florida. Um, and that was uh, what now is called Jupiter Kiteboarding. Yep which is a huge kiteboarding spot down there. It's really popular, isn't it? Yeah, Jupiter is, uh, is definitely a mecca in the U.S. And obviously, it's probably, I would say it might be the biggest spot in Florida at this point. Yeah. And so how did you go from, you know, discovering kiteboarding to actually getting, you know, on a pro rider deal and getting on the team? Because I remember you were in quite a lot of photos and in quite a lot of magazines back in those early days. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it seems like a lifetime ago now, to be honest with you, it's a, it's a, it's a different world. But um, back then it was actually, I was um, hanging around the kiteboarding shop every day after school because, you know, he, here I was um, just obsessed with the sport and here's a store five minutes down the street. So I was there every day after school. I mean, it's literally, I don't know uh, how many hours I racked up, but a lot, quite a few. Yeah. And the owner, uh, asked me, I think I was about 15 years old. He said, Hey, would you be interested in going to um, an event in North Carolina with me? And that was in 2002. It was the hurricane Isabel relief contest. Okay. Um, and I said, yeah, like I would love to do that. And somehow he convinced my parents to let me drive up with him uh, to North Carolina. It's like a 15 hour, 16 hour drive from, from where we are here. And, uh, and then I met the Cabrina guys. They had a sort of a, a demo going on. They, all the, um, all the guys back then and, uh, and they were just really nice to me. They, they, uh, they were, um, you know, really supportive and they were helping me out. And I remember uh, running into them at the next couple events. And at some point, I, I don't even remember what was sort of the, the time for the exact moment of when they said, Hey, you know, would you like to be on the team? It was sort of more of a, Hey, we just hung out all the time, and then they started giving me deals on kites, and then that that relationship uh, continued to flourish. So I, I can't even pinpoint when it really, uh, if there was like a date of when that happened. It was just sort of a good relationship and really great people to work with. Yeah, and so it's kind of it wasn't a sort of a a defining moment, I guess. It was just the fact that you were hanging out with these guys. You were like the the grom around the store or the shop, and you were there twenty four seven when you weren't at school, and then it kind of progressed from there. And what were you studying at, you know, obviously when you, you left school, you had a pretty interesting career, I guess, because a lot of pro kiters are just chasing that pro kite dream at that time, probably looking towards the Aaron Hadlows of the world, winning all the prize money and doing the world tour, which was a big deal. So did you kind of have other ideas? Were you always a little bit kind of like, this isn't going to be my full career or... Honestly, I, I never really thought of it. I, I know a lot of people do think of things that way. They're like, okay, can I do one or the other? I, I didn't really spend much time thinking about it. I knew, you know, college was something I wanted to do. Unfortunately, you know, I went to a college where it was a bit colder than I was accustomed to up in Connecticut. Um, and then I went to a grad school in Rhode Island and then I worked in New York for four years. So, you know, for, for a long time, kiteboarding definitely took a backseat, but I still managed to sneak out for one or two events a year and, um, you know, either local events or international ones. And, you know, so I didn't get to be on the water as much, but honestly, you know, I, I even recognized it right away. The time I got on the water, I really valued it even more, you know, when you can only get out once or twice a month, you really value that time on the water. So, you know, there was never a time in my life. I think the longest time I went without riding, was probably only about a four month stretch when I hurt my ankle pretty badly. Um, but there was never a time I didn't 
find a way to get on the water. Um, so yeah, it was, it would have been nice to get out more and spend more time on it. Yes. But then maybe I wouldn't have valued it as much. Maybe I would have burnt out like a lot of pro riders do. Um, so, you know, I, I wasn't able to kind of maintain that level of, uh, athleticism as I was, but I had a great time and that's really, for me, that's all that mattered. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, at, at that time there was a lot of people, ditching school, chasing the pro dream, you know, like, you know, literally that was the thing to do. And so it's interesting when you chat to people that didn't do that, um, you know, where they ended up with it. And it's nice to hear that, you know, even though you were still focused on studies and things like that, you were still getting on the water whenever you could and still had the passion for it, I guess, which is, you know, the important thing that we all share. And I feel like, I don't know about you, but I feel like I've talked to a lot of these guys that, you know, like you said, you know, we basically grew up with and, some of them were sneaky about it. Like they did school online back then and I didn't even know that they were doing it. I just thought they were kite surfing and they're like, no, I got it. I got two degrees. And I was like, wow, that's great. And I'm, I'm really happy for you. That's, that's great. And some of it was a surprise. Others, not, you know, others, people kind of made it more publicly known, like, no, I'm going to take a break and do school. But uh, there was a lot of pro riders that I think a lot of the public would be surprised with to know that they were able to do all of that and still uh, make time for it. So I, I've, I've always been a big fan of education and, um, you know, eventually becoming a teacher myself. I sort of always, you know, have found value in it. Um, and I, I think, especially now, I mean, there's no reason not to pursue um, professional careers in sports and still get a education and get a degree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's things like the the world class kite academy and stuff like that. It's kind of you know looking at opportunities for kids that yeah they want to kite all the time, but actually, you know, when the music stops and your knees are completely shot, it's quite handy to have something to fall back on. <laughs> and realistically, you can't kite all the time. You have to there there has to be other things. It's good for your for your mind, your body. You have to take breaks, and why not? take it pursuing something that will you know set you up for the rest of your life but i mean if there was things like the world class kite academy when i was a kid obviously that would have been that, that to me like kids who go through those programs i'm, I'm so jealous that is so absolutely cool yeah i would i would do it back in time and do something like that that would be awesome yeah it's kind of the dream for a lot of kids and i think that's their their basic business model is make something super awesome and amazing and then you've got an 11, 12-year-old kid just nagging their parents to part with the cash. It's like, of course, it's just an absolute dream. <laughs> I, um, it's funny, I, you know, I, I'm pretty well connected to the industry through my work with Cabrina, but also just because I've been around it like you for a very long time. Yeah. I've never spoken to somebody from that group, but I talk about them all the time. It's almost like a weird thing where when I finally get introduced to them, I feel like I'm almost like a bit of a fan club of theirs so yeah. i'm really excited to connect with them at some point yeah they're a good bunch actually i know a few of the people that have worked with them in the past and i think Lindsay, who Lindsay mcclure from hood river who was our features editor for a while she actually left to go and work with them and did a bunch of traveling and then one of my other friends has been doing it as well and yeah it just seems like an amazing program and an amazing opportunity but you know it's a it's a tough one I guess is they've only got so many places and I'm amazed that no one else has set something up. You know, if they're only taking 20, 30 kids in or whatever, then there's all these kids are screaming for it. There's got to be some opportunity there, which I guess will grow with time. I think, especially now with COVID, I think people are considering alternative types of schooling uh, throughout the world. And I, so I, I think they, they have a really bright teacher ahead and hopefully at one point I can connect with them and, if we could ever support them in any way, that would be for me a, a really, that, those are the fun projects, right? Those are the things that you, you get excited about. Yeah. Helping kids out, growing the sport, looking to the future and things like that. It's interesting. You just touched there on, on the sort of shift in education. And I remember when um, James Balding, who looks after, you know, a lot of the marketing side of things at Cabrina and the social media and stuff, He's a really good friend of mine. Um, he's been staying at the house a bunch um, since COVID started because we're all kind of locked down together with nowhere to go. And um, when he mentioned the whole buyout, which we'll get on to later, and he said, oh, yeah, John's um, John's coming on. I was like, oh, you know, I know the name from being a pro rider, but, you know, what, what the hell has happened from him becoming a pro rider to suddenly, you know, buying out Cabrina? And he didn't disclose any numbers, obviously, but I can imagine it wasn't a cheap thing. And he mentioned that it was an education program that you got into. So, you know, what you mentioned that you're a teacher. So you went to university or, or you know, college. What did you do after that? 
Yeah, so I studied uh, child developmental psychology and I got a teaching certificate for elementary ed and I taught for a very short period of time, actually just for a few months in between, um, wasn't even a full year between a college and grad school. I got into a grad program right away um, and that grad program was in education policy and I worked at a school during that time. Um, and during that time, you know, I, I was, I thought my life was going to be, hey, I want to be a teacher. I, I really like working with kids. I, I absolutely love that. I had a huge passion for it. And it also afforded me time to get on the water as well. So it was, it was, I thought it was a perfect combination. But during my time working at that school in grad school, I, I was uh, administering uh, exam software for the school. Uh, they didn't have anybody do that role. And it was just a role I kind of added to my plate because I was capable of doing it. And I, I started talking to a few of my friends. I said, I couldn't believe how much they were charging for the system and how bad it was and how unuseful it was. It really wasn't helping the kids or the teachers. It was more of a state requirement. And there was so much to be gained by having a better system. And we were looking and looking for better systems. Couldn't find it. And I thought, you know what? I've got all these friends who love software uh, or developers. And so we put together a business plan. Uh, raise some money. Actually, a lot of our uh, kiteboarding community, including uh, people that you've had on the show, like Bill Ty, had given me excellent advice, introduced me to our incredible people who became investors. Um, and we ran that company for about five years, started it in 2011, sold it in 2016. And, um, you know, we were serving over 80,000 teachers and students at the time when we got, uh, when we uh, exited out of it. Wow. So was it like an online education kind of program system is it was it sort of a bit before its time in its sense when you look at what's happening in today's world no I think you know it was definitely I, I would call it more I, I wish it should have come earlier <laughs> it was you know our goal it was a online assessment program so it was okay. a way for teachers to build assessments and then the analytics from those assessments would help parents and teachers determine better um, pathways for students to understand what their strengths and weaknesses were. But our, our big claim to fame and why t teachers and schools really loved us was we would take all that data and provide students free open education resources. So Khan Academy videos, things like that, that were tailored to them based on how they did. So you could imagine, right, go, you, you're in school one day, you take a math test and you really struggle on a couple things. You, you know, you're basically gonna go home and either study yourself Yep. have a parent pop you out or you have to rely on your teacher to reteach you those things. All those things don't happen uh, for all students, right? Though that's seldom. And in and, and our model, it was more of, you know, you take the exam and you obviously do it digitally. And then when you get home that night on your phone, it says, hey, Johnny, you, this is the question you got wrong. And here's a video that's specifically going to help you do that. So yeah, the students do have to, to do the work, but we're, we're providing them the exact resources they need to get the answers they need in a world of, hey, I've got five minutes to do this on the bus. Yeah. How can I get this really quickly? Um, and, and that's really what we did is that that additional step to helping that student get past any uh, hurdles. Um, that's what teachers really valued in the product. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of coding went into something like that. You know, you've got the, the psychological side of it, the if this, then that, you know, when they get this question wrong, which video are we going to send them? That sounds like, you know, from, from someone who's in the digital sphere, a lot of back-end hard work went into that project. You know, I'll be honest. I, yes, so the answer is absolutely <laughs> yes. Um, fortunately and, and unfortunately, I, I wasn't really, I didn't do much of that myself. I, I don't know how to code at all, really. I know very little... Um, I had a beyond amazing team. I think if you if you looked at you know 400, 500 different companies and you interviewed the founders and um, about how uh, how they came across their technical team, um, nobody came across their team as fortunately as I did. And I, I got very lucky. I got very hardworking people, um, people I certainly didn't deserve, um, but you know, they, they loved the space we were in and they were just great hardworking people. And, you know, luckily I'm still in touch with a lot of them today. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's that, you know, a lot of people look for, you know, quality of, of life within their work role and stuff like that. And anything working with kids is always going to give you that kind of satisfaction. And even more so from the sounds of it, if you're, you're helping the kids where they're struggling, you're then providing them a service that can, you know, help them out. So that seems like, yeah, it's a kind of dream job for a lot of developers compared to oh, I'm just coding a bunch of stuff for a bank or I'm coding something that's really boring or I can't get passionate about, I guess. 
No, I mean, it definitely, it's, it's, you know, being able to say to your family and your friends and people you meet, yeah, I, I do this great thing for thousands and thousands of teachers and students rather than, hey, I've made an app that, you know, helps teenagers post photos of themselves. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but obviously, you know, one is certainly something you can find more value in. And, yeah. And, and that's really what I guess has driven me for all this time is, you know, all that work was, I found that there was a lot of value in that, you know, being able to provide that value for tens of thousands of teachers and students that, that for me, that was worth all of it. Yeah. All the hard work, long hours and things like that made it worthwhile. And then, so 2016, you, you kind of sold up. What was the decision around selling the business and, and getting out? We had a really great uh, company, uh, com- uh, you know, uh, approach us about an acquisition. They had a lot of resources and they seemed to be very passionate about expanding the business in a way that at the time I couldn't. I was, you know, I started the company when I was 23 and then I was, I think, 28 or so when I sold it, 28, 29 when I sold it. And, you know, they 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 had a new CEO. They were going to bring in and invest a lot of money. These were things that, you know, I, I couldn't provide at the time. So I was more than happy to to uh to work with them and i stayed with them for a few months but then decided to continue on on my own and i actually uh for the last several years up until cabrina and and still today a bit i work with uh, universities that move programs to online programs so i help in that transition working with the teachers mostly making sure that those programs are ready to go online yeah so staying in the sort of education sphere and and it's nice, I think it's often the case, you can take a business so far and then it sometimes helps when someone else can just take it to that next level. And I think sometimes you can you can stay in it for too long almost and it kind of stifles where it could be or where it should be. Um, that's something I always think that we do a little bit is, you know, if we had some some bigger people involved, then we could, you know, have more magazines and more people using the platforms that we've developed and all the technology that we've done. So, yeah, it's nice that you sort of recognised that and decided to let it flourish when it could and, you know, take a step back from it. And then obviously staying in education a little bit, still kiteboarding um, and then the Cabrina deal, like how did that come about? You know, what was the the background behind that, basically? It was a huge shock when I first learned about it. And I guess the short version of it, it was, is that uh, it, it was two, it was almost two years ago. It was about a year and three quarters ago. Um, I was at the AWSI event in Oregon. Yeah, um, who'd really? I hadn't been to one of those events in a decade or so. So, you know, there was a big gap there. And I went because I really wanted to show my wife what it was like out there. Mm-hmm. Um, she'd never been out there. And I, I told her stories about going out there every year as a kid for events and just having fun. Um, and it's just an amazing place. And we were out there and I was talking to the current CEO, at then the president of the U.S. Distribution of Cabrina, Ken Marankovic, yep. about the opportunity in that, you know, he said that there was somebody looking to purchase Cabrina um, and he started to talk to me about, it, and then a couple months went by and he said the deal basically didn't go through and he was looking for other people that might be interested. And I, at first I wasn't interested myself because I, it was, yeah, it just wasn't on my radar. And then after working with him for a few months to find people that were interested when it became, once I got as invested as I was, it became very obvious that, Hey, this is an opportunity that I'd like to consider, um, and then I, I needed to bring in a few other investors to, to handle the size of the deal. And so I, I made a few calls for people who were added kiteboarders who I think had the same regard for the brand as I did and had the same passion for the industry, um, but also brought to the table a, a huge amount of business experience. I, I think, no, you know, it would be very difficult for somebody to make the argument that any company in this industry has the business expertise on the board that we do at this point. I mean, we are beyond lucky to have the board members we do. Um, they've been very supportive through the acquisition. And, you know, we put the funds together and made an offer and, and they accepted. So it was, um, you know, it, it went very quickly. I mean, we we made an offer in November of 2019 and closed in fe- on February 11th, 2020. So it was really wow. like three. That's really fast. Yeah, it was very quick. It was a little scary, but you know the deal needed to get closed. We we had a lot that we wanted to accomplish, and then COVID hit. So yeah, well, that was going to be my next question because you just you know you're purchasing at a time when. 
the kite industry is kind of doing really well and people are buying kites and you know Cabrina's always been one of the the top brands up there and it's got a huge following in the US and all of a sudden the rug just literally got pulled out from everyone um that must have been a bit of a, a bum twitchy moment where it was like oh <laughs> yeah I mean that was that was scary I, I I don't know how much scarier a business can get when you take it over and then it was basically February 18th was when it became a real global pandemic we went from this is a problem you know we were actually looking at the issue during acquisition as a hey this is a problem in Asia potentially for manufacturing yeah and there might be some but we never at the time considered that this could go beyond that. I mean, you know, nobody knew. And we had, you know, a thousand other things we were focusing on. And boy, was that a shock. Um, and we really didn't know, but, you know, I, we had a, a board meeting right away to talk about it. And we, we looked at the situation and we said, you know, one of kiteboarding's peak years was when the market crashed in 2008. And at the end of the day, as long as people can get outside, they're going to kiteboard. Yeah. Um, we were relatively confident. We actually didn't hold back. Uh, we never slowed down production that one day. Um, I know a lot of brands got into a bit of trouble this last year when they slowed down production because they thought the market was going to crash. They thought people weren't going to be on the water as much. People wouldn't have as much money. And I think that's one of the reasons we did so well this last year was because, you know, we actually were one of the few brands that were able to deliver. Um, and, you know, we even, we still had issues uh, making perfect deliveries because of COVID and uh, shipping delays and all these other logistical problems we encountered in huge expenses. I mean, unbelievable expenses to get things shipped out um, that, you know, cost us four or five times more than they used to cost us. Now they cost us quite a bit more. Um but obviously, the whole world's dealing with that problem, and you know we dealt with it. And you know, so now I think you know we had a really successful year, and it was a bit of luck, but also a bit of a a bit of faith in the industry that you know people people need their water time. You know, they just need it. They, it's their escape from their lives, and it's something that you know uh, you know people like you, obviously, and me, we understand how important it is to get on the water as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the you know you hit the nail on the head there. It was. I remember the when it first kind of happened. I think we were in the we were in the Alps snowboarding, and we were buying a house at the time. So we were like, right, let's just cut and run because they're closing the borders in Europe, and we don't want to get stuck here and the house falls through. So we like raced back home, and then it was like, right, we're publishing a magazine, and I think it was Jim at Kite World had just published, and I was like, you lucky git, you know, you've got your magazine out and you've sent all your invoices, and that's great. And then our accountant's like, right, you know, how much money have you got in the bank? how many invoices are you planning on sending? Don't send any invoices. No one's going to be paying them. You know, you're going to be in all sorts of trouble. You've got to cut all the staff. And it was just this real kind of, you know, scary time, I think, for about two or three weeks. And then luckily, you know, the, the resilience of kiteboarding shone through. And it was interesting to see, you know, as soon as I think, you know, the bans on going to the beach were lifted in Europe, it was kind of a real big takeoff point and I like you're bang on I don't think kite surfing's had a better year you know our, our local kite surfing shop um that I used to hang out in as a kid I went in to see him and I was like wow you, you selling the shop are you you're done like you know there's nothing in here and he's like no no it's literally we've sold everything you know we've got no stock we can't get stock anything we could sell we could sell it 10 times over and I think that was a great thing to see and it's given people confidence now that the pandemic's dragged on, I think that, you know, kiteboarding and water sports in general is going to be resilient because, as you say, people want to get on the water. They don't want to, you know, they can't go down the pub. They can't go to the restaurant. They want to be able to get out. And people ended up having a lot more money, I think, than they realise, because if you're not commuting to work, you're not doing all these things, you've got all this extra cash, right? Yeah, not going to the pubs as much. And, you know, no, it's been, I mean, look, the pandemic, COVID-19 has been a terrible thing for the world in many ways, but there has definitely been, for, for this industry, there's been a huge silver lining um, in, in, so, in many different ways, not just in the uh, peak of interest for people that want to do more individual outdoor activities. I mean, the Barron's report, um, I don't know if the Barron's report is a global report, just a U.S. report on investments, but that came out uh, in the middle of the year saying, you know, outdoor activity uh, industries are individual outdoor activity industries are, you know, one of the top three investments for the year, basically. Um, but there were some other things about COVID that really did a very positive thing for the market. It actually, um, you know, I think it realigned uh, 
product development cycles. Um, you know, now, for example, Cabrina is launching in on the calendar year, right? So we're launching more in season. We're actually coming out right now with our 2021 collection, yep. which as you know, the season's really just about to start opening up in the next month or so. Um, so now when, you know, people go to the shops, they have the new equipment starting this year instead of buying it in the middle of the season and then only getting to use it for a few months before end of season. Um, and then it's really helped out the supply issue and the, the, um, the lack of supply has helped with these companies who are really historically known for heavy, heavy discounts. Right now with a limited supply, all of a sudden prices are at high and it's, it's become a huge less burden on shops to um, have uh, guys coming around doing price rating, you know, going shop to shop, asking for the best deal possible. Now it's, nope, this is, this is what we have in stock. And if you don't want it, yeah, <laughs> it I'm might not be. 10 guys there that will buy it next. So yeah, it's, that's, I mean, that's a real positive thing, isn't it? I mean, we work in the mountain bike industry as well. And that's just, you know, you can't buy a mountain bike in the UK at the moment. Um, and then that's been compounded just recently by Brexit. But it actually pushed the secondhand prices of mountain bikes through the roof as well. So suddenly, you know, you look at this these products that perhaps traditionally the secondhand value's not been great because of the discounting in the stores and because people are like, oh, I can get it for 50% off if I just wait three months rather than buying it secondhand. And then that pushes the secondhand value down. I think it's, um, yeah, it's a real reckoning kind of moment for the industry that can have a positive effect as well. Yeah, it's, it's a healthy thing for the market to, to have the correct amount of supply for the demand, uh, to not have prices being slashed left and right all the time. Um, it, it, this is a really good thing, and I hope we can um, continue it after COVID. We can keep continuing producing to market levels, and hopefully the brands who, you know, historically, and Cabrina was, you know, before we took over, they were, you know, I wouldn't say that by not the worst, but there was certainly... Um, a part of that problem. And, you know, that's been a big strategic move where we've made a very clear commitment to not overproduce and to not heavily discount our products. They're, they're high quality premium products. There's no reason to discount them. Um, you know, there's always going to be some small discounts at the end of the season when there's a few leftover products, but it really, it should be a, you know, Hey, this is the 5% of our total sales are discounted at the end of the year, not 25, 30, 35, any crazy numbers like that. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's good for the sport as a whole it's good for the brands it's good for the the, the riders who bought into it because that's the other thing is you can buy the kite full price and then next week find out you know you're seven days late for a 50 percent off deal and you're like kicking yourself and yeah it's not doesn't doesn't give good goodwill to the customer i think at the end of the day no you i mean if you saw that with cars it, the, the whole industry would be totally chaotic so no i think um this is all really good stuff i i, I just hope we the whole industry has learned a lesson here and can continue to sort of um, take advantage of that lesson learned um, by accident, right? Nobody intended this to happen. Yeah. So it was a free lesson and we should, well, well, not free, I should say. We, you know, a lot of people suffered and, and the brands did suffer in a lot of ways. There were some brands who, who did struggle. I know we lost a couple of brands this year um, to COVID. So there, there has been some casualties. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's another you know you could look at it as a positive or a negative but you know perhaps the sport was getting a little bit brand heavy anyway and you know there's it just gets diluted a little bit um and so it's a yeah kind of a a kind of a, a clear out point perhaps where you know the 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 guys who are managing it well and working well are going to be okay and the guys that you know haven't got the best management and aren't quite you know on top of the game and i think you said it earlier which was the you know not not delaying your production you know i think that was the kicker for a lot of brands was the people that panicked and called up the factories and said we don't want to produce suddenly lost their production slots and then five minutes later everyone's going we need more product and it's like you can't get back in there and that's the sort of the difficult thing and it's it was a real gamble at the time i think for a lot of brands to know what to do and it's it's been tough but it's nice to see that you know, so many brands did survive. We only lost a couple, I think. And, you know, the industry looks pretty healthy. People are busting to get out on the water. I know that. So that's a positive thing. Did it affect um, kiteboarding much in the US in terms of water time and stuff like that? I know in Europe, there are a lot of bands and stuff, but how was it over there for you guys? No, there was definitely less bands on beaches, I think, in the US in general. I think um, the the good the US is a very fortunate situation in that a lot of our big beaches are in 
more remote areas. I mean, look at, so Florida, right? There's a beach every 15 seconds. So there's so much beach room um, that would be pretty difficult to, to prevent people from going to all the beaches in Florida. Um, and our other big hotspots, right? North Carolina is in the middle of nowhere. I mean, the, out, the Outer Banks, North Carolina, I mean, it's a three-hour drive from basic anyway. civilization, really. <laughs> They wouldn't like me characterizing that, but I think they, they would admit that, you know, it's definitely far outside the, the, the big cities and what have you. Um, so the point being, and we do have a lot of big kite surfing spots within and nearby big cities, but the vast majority of them are not. So I think we're pretty lucky in that regards. And I know in the UK, you know, it's, it's a lot more of a dense population around those kiteboarding areas. So um, I think maybe that had a big impact on it, but no, we, people definitely uh, were able to get back on the water. I, I think the total downtime of beaches getting shut down was maybe a four to six week period at the very most. It was, it was pretty short. That's pretty good, isn't it? We're, we're in, um, we're in Wales and I tallied it up the other day. We've not been allowed to go to the beach for 187 days now. And yeah, oh, wow. we're in the same country as England, you know, we're in the UK, but Wales has a different divulged, um, diverged government. And so we're under these stupid rules where we're not allowed to go to the beach. And, it was kind of end of the first lockdown was twice as long as the UK's as England's one. And it was just a bit stressful, but the, the police weren't really policing it. But the last two weeks, they've done a full crackdown on surfers in Wales. So we've all been getting fines and for breaking the rules. And it's kind of a stupid thing because you're like, well, going to a beach to exercise on your own on the water is so good for your mental health. And you're not going to catch COVID there. And the joke is I can drive to McDonald's and get a burger, but I can't drive 10 minutes to the beach to go and surf. And you're like, what? It's really unfortunate. And, you know, the other thing is, right, it's every person that's outdoors doing individual things that's two less people being crowded in a, in a room together, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're not going to be on the beach, you're, you're going to be trying to sneak into an apartment with a friend and having a beer. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, look, at the end of the day, People are making policy decisions with the information they have available and uh, dealing with a lot of complexities and not a lot of experience. You know, the world's never really dealt with this quite like this before. So obviously that's really unfortunate. It's easy for me to say sitting here, but, you know, I, you know, I try to be um, open-minded to the idea that, you know, we're so many people are done so many problems and it's, you know, it's hard to know what went into the decisions, but clearly, <laughs> From an outside view, yeah, that doesn't seem very logical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a few there's a few things that go on in Wales that are a bit strange that we weren't expecting. We, only, we literally moved here first um, first week of lockdown. And so it was like, oh, we've come to this beautiful place with amazing surf and amazing beaches. It's like, oh, we can't go for 115 days, right? But hey, hopefully that will change soon. And the one good thing about the UK is their vaccine rollout is really positive. So hopefully things can start getting back to normal a bit. Um, to change the subject a little bit, I wanted to ask you, because there's, there's been quite a few kind of changes at Cabrina since you took over. You know, one we've already mentioned, which is the changing the product launch cycle um, to a much more, because it was always Cabrina, I seem to remember, with a brand in the past that pushed that launch cycle forwards. You know, I remember Chris Martin, who I'm sure you remember, he told me once, he goes, oh, yeah, we're going to launch our kit a month earlier next year so we can sell all that. And then it, a month earlier and a month earlier, and it'd be like, I'd be going to the the whatever it was, 2010 kit meeting, and it would be like in June or July or something of the, you know, the year before. And it just kind of seems to be getting out of hand. So that was one kind of major change that I know you've made. The other thing is, you know, with a the, the lot of the foiling gear, there's been like a complete redesign, um, which we ran an article on, not last issue, I think the issue before. I'll put a link to it in the podcast. But, you know, you've, you've obviously redesigned that. Um, and then, you know, some of the other changes around, you know, new kites come into the market and, you know, wings and things like that and get behind that. Has that been something that you've been working with with Pete or is that something that's been led more by your management team or how's that come about? Because obviously Pete's the, the face of the brand, um, you know, and he's he's still part of the brand and still very much part of it. And they've got all their development going on in Maui and stuff. But obviously now you've got the Miami office. How's that kind of changing the dynamic? I think it's it's really in a way the opposite of that. It's sort of um, now that we've sort of you know before the whole Neil Pride group was it was a very big organization, right? And it had multiple divisions of multiple industries, um, and not just core markets like kiteboarding, windsurfing, but other things too, less core things like really cheap paddle boards and uh, things that really didn't fit within our our industry. But now with the consolidation of Cabrina into really just 
the, the people who really focus on kite surfing and wind, wind power sports and more of a core market, we work much more together. I mean, we are on calls as a group three, four days a week. Um, we're in two different locations, but we are effectively one group. I mean, we, we really don't even, um, when we talk about the, the, you know, the team in Maui, it's not really even, that's the design team and this is the business office in Miami. It's just, those are some of our employees out there and here's yeah. some of our employees here. Um, so, and all these decisions were really, I, I wouldn't even say any of them, I mean, my agenda items that are really important to me haven't really been reflected in any of these decisions. I mean, this is all the same group of people who've been running the business now. They just have had the ability to actually make decisions themselves rather than have to go through a, a huge bureaucratic uh, group that has a lot of different priorities. Um, I mean, my real priorities in this company, and I'm hoping that will become more visible over the next couple of years, are more youth development, um, things like that. I, I'm very passionate about, obviously, from my background and being a teacher and working in education, I'm very, you know, very interested in doing that more. Uh, but no, the, you know, the the foils, I mean, that definitely was, uh, you know, something I was pushing for, but the entire group recognized that, hey, when you, when you have something like a hydrofoil, that doubles or triples the amount of time that your customers can get on the water. That is, that's clearly a value. And that's something like any other industry. I mean, if, if a, if a golf company could come out with a golf club that gets their golf players to play twice as much golf, then they would definitely do that, right? The more time you do in a sport, the, the more money you're more likely to spend and the more time you're going to enjoy it. Um, and the more committed you will be to that sport. So hydrofoils were, we're a, hey, we need to redesign this program. We need to be a top hydrofoil company tomorrow because it adds so much value to the rest of our product range. So um, I, we definitely, I, I mean, I supported that from a, an investment point of view. I said, look, I, I will make a budget, show it to me. What's it going to cost us to be a top hydrofoiling company uh, within this industry? And, and I'm very happy with our first runaround. I think our, our new set of foils, the X-Series, is really cool. Um, and we've got some new wings coming out in the future uh, working with some of our top pro riders um, that I think will will really kind of um, set us apart from the rest. But I, I think our, our current offering is, is really amazing. I mean, I, I use the production one myself and it's uh, it's been great. Um, and then I, I'll be honest with you, I forgot the uh, the second part of that question. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, with the, the wings and the other things as well, just, I mean, I think you've answered it in the sense that I was kind of, I was getting at, you know, has there been a, you know, here's John coming in with his management crew and, and there's Pete on Maui and it sounds like it's, you know, that's not the case at all. It's very much, a, you know, we're, we're making decisions together and, you know, we're running the business. And I think the other thing that's really good to sort of highlight, because a lot of people were questioning and I get it all the time, you know, that I speak to all the brands quite regularly and, and they're always asking, you know, the inside industry rumor mill goes wild and, oh, you know, Cabrina's finished, Cabrina's up a sound. I'm like, well, that's not what I'm hearing, you know, but they don't get to hear what's actually happening. And I think the biggest story for me was that, you know, as you said, Cabrina was part of Neil Pride Group and that is a massive group. It's run out of Hong Kong. There's loads of bureaucracy around it, you know the guys in Maui couldn't say, oh, we want to do this. And then it has to go through, well, is that, you know, costable? Can we afford it? Well, no, we can't. And, you know, there are other issues around some of the pride group companies not being profitable and, you know, therefore the money's getting split. And so from, from my sort of take from the outside was actually, like you said, this is now just, you know, a breath of fresh air for the whole brand because you can do what you want and you can do things like redesign the whole foil range because you can see the value in it rather than being stuck, you know, being dictated to by higher powers that maybe aren't as invested in the sport. Exactly. And and just simply the ability to move quickly. I mean, the difference of getting a product going three or four months earlier is, is literally the difference between being a top tier competitor in that or, or not. And it's not just about, Hey, let's make a decision and be on top of this right away. It's that adds up over a couple of seasons. If you're three months late to this trend and you're three months late to the next trend, um, they, they compound and they become a bigger issue than they really should be. So, you know, we've been able to move really quickly and luckily um, it's, it's very obvious. I mean, these, these trends are not like, uh, you know, there's not a lot of split opinions on the trends, but it's sort of like, we all know this is where it's going let's make a decision here. Let's, let's, let's sort of say, what's, what's this going to cost and, and do we have the right team to do it? So, you know, we, but we're a, a pretty tight knit group. I mean, our brand manager is Dave Haslow, right? I, I met David when I was 17 years old, he flew up from St. Lucia to go to Hatteras. And I was like, Hey, I'm driving up. Do you want to just jump in the car with me instead of 
jumping on another flight and playing for that flight. Um, and, and now he's the brand manager. So it's, you know, he was, a, he, I think he was a sales rep at the time. Um, he was the Caribbean sales rep, or maybe even just for a few islands. I'm not sure. But this is, you know, this is you know, 15, 18 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, 18 years ago. <laughs> it's our, having a hard time uh, figuring out where we are in the timeline. <laughs> but, well, but yeah, you know, um, I, I've known our VP of sales, uh, right? Todd Greer was, he was the person who actually, I, although I, I mentioned before, I didn't have a specific timeline of sponsorship. He was definitely the first one to give me my first free set. I mean, that's something I do remember. And he's now our VP of sales. And he was at the time working under Kent Marankovic, our CEO. So um, our, our top U.S. sales rep, right? Damien Lori, one of my best friends in the world, lives down the street from me right now. Um, I've been going out to Maui to visit the entire design team since I was a kid. So this, these people to me, it's not like one office here, one office here. These are, these are friends. These are family. These are colleagues. These are people I've looked up to and I've known for more than half my life. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lovely kind of, you know, point on it is the fact that, yeah, you've been around that brand, you know, since you're a little grom and hanging out in Jupiter kiteboard, what's now Jupiter kiteboarding. And then it's almost, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a weird fairy tale almost to then come in as the the owner of said brand and be working with all those guys that, you know, at the time they were giving you a bit of free kit or you were driving them up to Hatteras. And then now, you know, you, you're sort of part of the team and you've got the vision to kind of run it. Are you bringing quite a lot of your your own vision to the table as to where you see the sport going um or are you sort of relying on what people are feeding you and stuff like that no i'm definitely relying on them i mean they, they are look i you know it's funny i actually pitched to our investors after you know made a very fancy presentation to it um you know i'd raised money for my startup i sold my last company this is you know i, I had maybe over 115 meetings with different venture capital funds in New York and in San Francisco when I ran that company. So I'm used to pitching companies to investors. And when I pitched this to our current board members and current investors, I concluded with, and I remember this, um, I, I knew a lot about education and a lot about education software. I know far more about this company and this industry than I knew about education software. Um, so if I, if I ever had a chance to win in another industry other than education software, this is it. And so although I do have that and I bring that to the table, I've definitely, I've, I've sort of, I've used that to affirm a lot of things that they're, they're telling me. Um, but really, no, it's, it's, it's the entire team strategic vision. Um, all the guys, not just, you know, uh, our, our guys in Miami, not just the Maui team, but people like James, even in the UK or, or European sales reps, you know, it's, it's actually pretty amazing how, similar everyone's vision is now that we're outside of a, um, an, a you know, in, within a, a U.S. owned company. And obviously we have our European support team as well. And, you know, everyone really sees eye to eye on it. I've, I've been pretty surprised actually the, the level of <laughs> synergy considering, you know, hey, well, why couldn't it have been done in the last 20 years really? Um, and I think it's really just because, hey, we're a smaller, tighter knit group that all is active, uh, or all, all are active, uh, you know, people on the water. Yeah. I think that's, you know, having that nimbleness is, is huge. And especially when something like a pandemic comes along and you need to be fast thinking and you can't have the bureaucratic wheels turning to making decisions, you need to be able to go, you know what, let's just do this or do that. So I think that's really interesting. And the other thing, you know, obviously you bought Cabrina, um, or Adventure Sports has, and you've also now just made a purchase on Dekine, which is one of my favorite brands growing up. Um, you know, when I used to windsurf back in the day, I was always about Dekine. I remember I actually worked for the Dekine distributor in the UK when they came out with the first thermoform harness, which I recall was the first harness ever to be priced over £100. I think it was £99. And I was like, no one's going to buy that harness. That's way too much money. That's crazy. And then, of course, you know, it's sold out. Everyone wants it. It's the coolest thing since forever. And I was always, my early kiteboarding days, a big fan of the Dekine products. You know, I knew the guy that was bringing him to the UK, always wore the pyro, never really touched anything else. And and then they kind of fell off the boil a little bit for a while. And it just, you know, used, the brands like Mystic came up and now you've got Monera um, and Pro Limit as well. And, you know, there's a lot more kind of players come into the market. Whereas in the past, it was just like Dekine had that whole wind sports thing sewn up. You know, they were the brand to have. So what was the decision behind, you know, looking at buying those guys and, and taking that on board? 
Well, so and just to clarify, we what we own is the license for the wind sports and foiling for Dakine. Yeah. Um, so Dakine uh, brand itself is is licensed out to different industries. Um, they're a bigger company, but we Dakine came across our radar when when word of them closing their shop for wind sports. They were yeah. going to continue on the surf industry and the other industry, but they were not going to do kiteboarding, windsurfing, foiling sports anymore. Um, that came across our radar. And, you know, we, one of the big things we were talking about is, Hey, you know, we want to work with an accessories brand more uh, formally because we, although we had a relationship with Neil Pride and JP and, you know, in that they had those things, you know, we, we wanted uh, a bit of control over our, uh, those products as well. And, you know, we were talking internally about expanding the Cabrina range to include those products. But when Dakine came across our radar as, Hey, is this something that we could work with? Um, the entire company said, yeah, let's pursue that. that that's a no brainer. Is there something there? So, you know, we, we made a few calls, um, really enjoyed having conversation with them. You know, they're really great people over to kind. And we saw the product range and they acknowledged that, Hey, there, there's definitely some innovation that needs to be had here. They're great products, but they definitely haven't been innovative on in a, in a little while. And, you know, we, we said, you know, this is something that our team, you know, we have a world-class design team. We make really great products. Um, so let's infuse this support into this brand, um, just like we were doing with Cabrina. And, you know, it just, it, it was honestly a, it wasn't even much of a decision. It was sort of like, it just came right in front of us. It was, it came right at um, a really great time. You know, over the summer, it was pretty clear that although COVID the long-term impacts were unknown. It was clear that the short-term impacts were not nearly as bad as what everyone was fearing they would be. So we felt pretty safe in moving forward with it. And it took a few months to get the deal closed, but yeah, now here we are. And, uh, you know, we have the ability to develop these products that complement Cabrina really well. Um, you know, Takine is a world-class accessories brand. So, you know, we, we, plan on continuing to do that and uh, having it, you know, the, the product range everyone has known come to love. I think we're clearly innovating on that and making them a bit better. Um, and then obviously we have some new products coming out too that I think will really complement the foiling market really well. So we're excited to bring those out in uh, well, hopefully the short future, but you know, everything takes time right now. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that was my next question was going to be, what's the kind of timeline between, you know, Dekine under your banner and, you know, obviously Dekine have got products now that you can just, put to market so what what's the kind of timeline before we see a kind of a, a cabrina oh well an adventure sports to kind harness i guess yeah i you know we've actually immediately put into some production changes so there's already some small things that maybe people won't recognize if they just buy a harness off the shelf um but if, if people will compare the two i think they'll see some immediate changes right away and some you know we're, we're very um intense about our oqc our qc uh, for the product. So, you know, we care about the quality control. And um, so we, we put that in place immediately. And I think we'll, we'll see that in the, the coming, this coming season right away. Um, but obviously next season will be, you know, we'll need a full year of really proper development to, to show the world sort of what, what our impact for this brand is going to be. Yeah. And, so you, <laughs> and are you working with the same factories or have you moved factories or what's the situation there? There's mostly we're going to be working with the same ones, but we definitely for certain things that we've we've already come across some groups that we started working with with Cabrina that we're really excited to work with. But there's the majority of them um, will be the same, definitely. I mean, there's you know we're, we're actually quite blessed with the the factories we've been working with. I mean, there are some of them you know the, the industry you know I think from even knowing as much about the industry as I did coming into this, I didn't realize how few factories really support this entire industry. It's not hundreds of factories. We're talking, you know, a, a dozen or so serious players. Um, and they're all, they're all really fantastic. Honestly, I've been on, you know, we, in due diligence, we, we spoke to every one of the ones that we work with, ones that we used to work with, ones that we've never worked with, just so I could uh, get introduced to everybody, know the landscape. I, I'm a, highly sort of inquisitive person. Like I just want to know everyone and everything and, and know what my options are available to me. Um, and yeah, I've been really blown away with just how small the kiteboarding world really is. I mean, it gets small. The more you get into it, the smaller it gets uh, really quickly. And, uh, but yeah, these are, these are uh, some amazing people at all these factories and uh, you know, the ones we work with and the ones that we don't, our competitors are in great factories as well. It's, it's pretty 
you know, I've worked in some other industries and I've, I've had a lot of friends with a lot of companies in different verticals. And it's actually quite impressive for how small this industry is, the, the level of professionalism that goes in these products. And I think that's clearly a result of just people being passionate about it. I don't think you get this high quality in industries that people, they might make money on, but they're not as passionate about. This is clearly a passion industry. And a lot of the factories were started by, you know, water sports enthusiasts themselves. So in much, in a lot of ways, I'm not that different. Um, although I've kind of come into this sport from a bit of a, a, a different angle. It's, it's not as much of a backdoor and uh, a different route than, than I think a lot of people think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, like you say, you've grown up around it and been part of it and we're still doing it even while you were, you know, within it, I guess, in terms of being part of the industry and stuff. Um, I've got one last question. I appreciate we're almost like four o'clock and I'm sure you've got your schedule like bang, bang, bang. But, um, you know, tell me if you've got to rush off. But I wanted just to touch on the the wingsurfing side of things, because obviously that's, you know, something that's exploded in the last year or so um, and something that Cabrina have kind of come to the table with, but perhaps, you know, a little bit late maybe in terms of some of the other brands that are out there like F1 or Duotone that have been pushing for it a while. What's your kind of focus on that? sport at the moment well our first yeah so definitely to acknowledge i mean i think the you know our whole everyone in the company now wanted to push in this direction for a long time this is an exact example of being a bit more liberated from the the, the former owners and being able to move quick and i think you know we bought the company in february we we released our first new wing um so although we have a product launch cycle that happens now we did release some wing flying equipment in the summer because we knew how important it was to get that to market so we focused on that and our first um our first focus on winging was actually hey this is an amazing sport but people are having a bit of a hard time getting into it because there is a bit of a difficulty when you're learning and getting up and going i mean yeah. once you're up on the foil and going you're hey yeah. this is my fun but that there that small step yeah seems steep to be learning curve small. isn't it yeah, it's like, well, where are the training wheels for the sport? You know, it seems like you're you're jumping on a mountain bike going screaming down a hill or nothing. Um, and so our first product, the X2 wing, although it's definitely a wing that anybody can use, you can use some weight riding and tricks and all that, one of the main focuses on that wing was, hey, how do we get this get up and go power? And that was that was actually something I was a very um passionate about pursuing. Hence Marankovic and me both said this is one of this this wing has to have this one quality more than anything else and i think we hit that on the head with that wing um so i was really excited and then you know with this new launch coming out um you know right now that we're about to launch right now uh we have a new wing that i think is a perfect complement that is the x2 that we launched in august is this ultra powerful really easy to use wing and now we have a wing that's a little bit more i would say it's more in line with what other other brands have been producing and it's much lighter weight and, you know, I think we've, we've added some higher performance features. So we kind of have, I wouldn't say one's the high performance wing and one's the low performance wing. I would say one's more, hey, this one happens to have some features that are a little bit more geared towards the uh, beginner. So I'd say it's like the Switchblade Kite. The X2 yep. is a lot more like the Switchblade Kite in my mind, where it's really easy, really stable. Can a pro-level guy use it? Absolutely. And, you know, plenty of our professional riders prefer the Switchblade, even though it's, you know, by a lot of people's standards, is our everyday person's kite. Um, but I think a lot of people who are looking for an ultra, ultra lightweight wing um, that's going to work a little bit better in waves, um, a little bit faster than the wind are going to be uh, really excited about the new Mantis that's coming out. Awesome. That's good. John, thanks for that. You've given me heaps of time. Um, it's been really interesting to chat and kind of hear where you've come from. And I think the listeners will be enjoying that as well, because... I can sense, you know, the amount of passion that there is there and the fact that the passion never went away. And yeah, I think you'd be sort of pinching yourself really to find yourself in this situation. Yeah, it's it's a dream, absolutely dream come true to work with friends, family, um, in an industry that I love. It's, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for it. So uh, yeah, no, I appreciate uh, taking the time to chat and anytime uh, you want to connect again, always happy to, to chat more. I learn more about this industry every conversation I have. There we have it. Season 2, episode 15 in the bag. I might hit that on the head for season 2 and start season 3, seeing as these are all going to be recorded in a slightly different manner. And perhaps 15 episodes isn't bad for a season. I hope you enjoyed that one. As ever, please give it a like and share. Um, pass it on to your friends, tell people about it. Hopefully we'll get a few more of these over to you over the next few months. That's my plan. 
and I've got a few people who I want to chat to, and I've actually got a couple still recorded. Um, so I'm going to listen back to those and see how dated they are and see if we can get those online as well for you. Anyway, I hope you're keeping safe. I hope you're keeping mentally as healthy as you can in these difficult times. I think that's the main crux for all of us is to try and stay sane while all this madness goes on around us. And let's hope that there's some light at the end of the tunnel and things are going to get better this year. You've been listening to me, Rue Chater, and the Intriguing Beings podcast. Until next time, thank you. <laughs>